This week on the podcast, I welcome Nathan Long. Nathan is a senior analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is the UK's number one investment platform for private and individual investors. They are trusted with more than £120 billion by over 1.6 million clients. So to have Nathan from Hargreaves Lansdowne on the Wealth Journal podcast is an honour and is massive for the podcast. So huge thanks to Nathan taking the time to come on my show. I learned a huge amount from Nathan. He helped me think about some things in a different way and it was great to talk to someone who, like me, wants to help make finance and investing a little bit easier to understand and hopefully encourages more people to not necessarily just invest, but think more about their finances and what options are available. As always, anything me and Nathan discuss on the podcast should not be considered financial advice. We are not here to make any recommendations, stock picks or anything of that sort. The Wealth Journal is here for purely educational and entertainment purposes and I encourage you to do your own research before making any investments. Now with that out the way, let's get cracking. So Nathan, welcome to the Wealth Journal podcast. And I guess before I start, first of all, thanks for thanks for coming on today. I think when I wanted to set up the Wealth Journal, my goal was to really take my understanding of wealth and investing and finance and and try and make it easier for other people to understand and also educate myself in doing so. So to have somebody like you who's um you know working in the industry and you obviously work for Hargreaves Lansdowne actually to come onto the podcast and um answer some of my questions is is really what what the wealth journal is all about. So yeah massive thank you and um yeah thanks for coming on today. Oh no, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Hope, hopefully my answers will uh, will give you some of the information you need, Jay. Fingers crossed. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it I'm sure it will. And I know sort of when we when we first caught up, we we discussed uh, a little bit off offline, if you like, um about and I think we're sort of aligned really in terms of trying to help just democratize the world of finance a little bit. And that's certainly the aim for the podcast. So I think we're aligned in that sense. Um, but yeah, obviously I've got a few loads of questions for you today, but before we get into that, I'd just like you to, to really just introduce yourself and just tell us a bit about, about you. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm Nathan Long. Uh, I'm senior analyst at the company Hargreaves Lansdowne. So Hargreaves Lansdowne is uh, an investment platform. So <clears throat> essentially we uh, provide uh, ISIS pensions and savings accounts for people to uh, invest and save their money. And I guess the key thing that we do is we provide uh, what we hope is really insightful information to help inform the decision making that goes along with that. So to your point, Jay, about trying to democratise investing, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it really accessible. And I think, you know, I've uh, sadly now I'm, I'm so old that I've been in the industry for nearly 20 years. And, you know, when I when I started out, I mean, I did, I came into the industry having absolute zero clue. Like, no, I literally knew nothing about financial services at all. And I just, for me, I really kind of, it struck me that this, there was this way to make your money work harder. And I think that's always the thing that's, that's kind of resonated with me is that it doesn't matter what you do for a job. You have got surplus income often and you can put that away and you can make it work harder for you. And so there is that to your point there's kind of that way to make your your money work harder and to actually grow your wealth over time and and actually I, that really from a very early 
early point of working uh, in financial services just struck me as quite an aspirational thing and something that was quite quite good to be involved with. And then kind of my journey within financial services has been kind of a bit dotted around. I mean, I've predominantly worked for Hargreaves Lansdowne, but I've uh, been, I mean, I, <clears throat> I used to work on our call centres to begin with. So right, right at the beginning of my my sort of time in financial services but then I was an advisor to individuals so where people wanted financial advice about their specific circumstances I, I gave that and then uh, I moved on to being uh, an advisor to companies when they were setting up workplace pension plans and then more recently I've been doing kind of a, a research role which is kind of more about trying to to work out absolutely what we should be saying to our clients to help them out with some of the decisions they're having to face in their day-to-day lives so uh, quite quite a checkered past but I think yeah my very much my kind of uh, sort of my guiding uh, beliefs in terms of why I want to work in this area is, is is very much around that helping people to make smart decisions with their money and and make it work harder for them. Excellent and when it comes to, to wealth and you just mentioned there about helping people save a, the extra that they've got get that money to work a little bit harder so they can they can build their wealth what does and I ask this question to a lot of my guests, but what does wealth mean mean for you? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> for me, I mean, I, I often I, it's actually rare I use the term wealth because I I actually think it's kind of has sort of connotations of already being rich, and and actually I that's kind of almost the opposite of the way I think about it. I just think that it's possible to set up an investment account from sort of twenty 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 five pounds a month. That's you don't have to be rich to do that. And I think what we see quite a lot is this, unfortunately, people kind of think that investing isn't for them. Uh, and I'm not really sure what they think investors have to be like. I mean, whether they have to be kind of pin, pinstripe suited and, you know, already already be kind of working in this area. But that's that's absolutely not the case. Actually, investing can be quite accessible. So, yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm very... <laughs> For me, I suppose wealth. What does it mean? It mean, I mean, I just think it delivers opportunity. More importantly, it kind of give it delivers this sort of resilience. That's for me everything about having wealth. It's not necessarily about being rich. It's not about um, wanting everything that you can possibly imagine. It's about giving you yourself that kind of bedrock so that you you can kind of almost you, you know your your circumstances in life can evolve based on what life throws at you. And I think that that for me is the most important thing about whether you call it wealth or whether you have, you, you, you know, you call it, call it sort of finance, you know, your, your personal finances. It's about having those in a decent shape so that whatever happens, you're going to be able to, to kind of get by. And even, you know, that might be for someone, you know, you might decide that you need to move house because you have another child. That's quite relevant to me because I had two new ones in, in lockdown, Jay. So there's, there's a lot of head scratching going on in the, in the long household at the moment. Or it might be that you decide to finish work early because, for example, you just don't feel able to, to sort of commit what you had done previously to, to the world of work. So there's just so many things that, you know, sitting here today as a, as a 40-year-old, I, I don't know what my life's going to be like. And I kind of work in financial services and I'm used to sort of planning these things through. So I just think having that, you know, having built sort of sound foundations in the background just gives you that opportunity to to kind of try and make the best of what what happens in your life, really. I think that's that's the way I just kind of think about it. It's probably not a very simple answer, but that's certainly the way I, I kind of view it. 
yeah, it's sort of aligned to a lot of the other guests that I've had on the podcast. I'm sort of waiting for the day for somebody just to come on and say, for me, wealth is purely Lamborghinis, Ferraris, mansions, yachts, and private jets. But <laughs> most people, and certainly as you get older, it, it is very much about stability. Like you said, resilience, being able to have choices in your life um, to weather certain storms or situations. And certainly when you have kids and things like that, def- that definitely makes it, um, yeah, makes you think a little bit more about your your circumstances and knowing that things can change. Um, I was reading something um, last week, just, I mean, wealth in, in, in just in basic terms, it could be the fact that you can, you can take a week off work paid to, to deal with an illness is, is in some ways a form of wealth that that a lot of people aren't always afforded so i think on some basic terms it it can go right down to even some of the some of the small things that that not a lot of people also have the chance to to experience so yeah no thank you for that i'm always keen to uh keen to get people's thoughts on that on that topic on to resilience um i know we, we we talked previously about the financial resilience um work that that you recently did i think it was you released a report a couple of months back now actually um and during this time where there's a lot of uncertainty and i feel that talking about investing last year in 2021 was actually quite exciting quite sexy in some ways the markets were going up and up and up there was a lot of um cash and um, driving prices up and everybody wanted to talk about putting the money to work the beginning of 2020 it's it's sort of been the opposite a little bit. We've we've seen markets retreat quite considerably. A lot of uncertainty around uh, Ukraine and inflation and energy prices, and it's actually got me thinking a little bit more about my own financial resilience, and um, and maybe worried me a little bit. So when um, I came across your report, I was I was quite intrigued just to just to understand it a little bit more. So can you just talk to me a little bit around financial resilience and what what you've learned? Um, and how people can maybe become more resilient. Yeah, sure. So, uh, sorry, so quite a lot, quite a lot to unpack there. So we, we, um, I mean, I, first thing on the on the markets at the moment, I think this is really important. So, I, I think actually what what we're seeing is just part and parcel of investing. Um, and when you get a market fall it normally just has a badge attached to it. So this one is the, you know, the problems we've got in Ukraine, obviously. Uh, previously, you've had Brexit. Before that, you had global financial crisis. Before that, you had uh, dot-com bubble bursting. You do get these from time to time. And as long as you've kind of planned out your approach and you're aware that these things are going to happen, it's not it's not a, they, they might happen. This, at some point, if you invest for, long, for a long enough period, this is going to happen. You just need to be able to kind of set up your approach um, to be able to cope with that more generally. So that in itself, I think, is kind of an element of resilience, kind of being uh, just kind of primed for how how things are going to uh, are going to go moving forward. Now, we the way that we've approached financial resilience for our report that you mentioned, uh, Jay, um, we have kind of. We, we, we were getting to a position where we recognised that people wanted help with planning their finances for building their financial resilience. And actually, you know, one of the best ways to do that is to go and speak to a financial advisor. Um, the problem is, I mean, a financial advisor is a bit like a, a lawyer. They're very, very, uh, you know, very, very highly qualified. Um, and they need to do an awful lot of work to make sure that their recommendation is perfect for you. So they're going to... 
take all the information about you, not only your current financial situation, but where you might be in 5, 10, 15 years time and help to sort of model a financial plan that's going to be worth, worth it for you. Now, whilst a lot of that will be very personalised if you're getting formal financial advice, um, not all of it is. So it, rather than pay what can be quite large fees to get financial advice, what we wanted to do was to kind of go, right, look, there, there are a few key core areas. If people focus on, they're going to be in a better place than if they hadn't engaged with with uh, financial planning in the first place. And so we we kind of badge that under under five key topics. So we uh, the first one is control your debt. Uh, then we have protect your family, uh, save for a rainy day, uh, plan for later life, and invest to make more of your money. So that's the bits that we've been talking about already, the, the making your money work harder for you by investing rather than holding in cash. So we took those five topics and what we wanted to kind of almost bring to life is some of the tips that our financial advisors would help uh, a client with if they came and took and paid for that formal financial advice and just said, actually, look, you can probably get your head around some of this stuff without needing a personalised plan. And we can just give you this information to help out. So, you know, for example, with uh, when it comes to uh, saving for a rainy day, you know, our steer would be have something like three to six months worth of your essential expenditure that you have uh, for your household hold that in cash because then if you uh, lose your job or if you or the boiler breaks down you've got some money there and, it, and there is that that um, emergency fund to fall back on and it's these kind of tips which actually it's easy to ignore because people kind of they kind of want to solve the problem of oh well I'll, I'll invest a little bit more in this, that, or the other thing that's got interesting, or or I'll put some money in my pension because everyone keeps telling me I'm not saving enough. But actually, it's these five kind of core buckets that you need to focus on, and making sure that you're resilient in each of those is really, really important uh, for planning your overall finances. Sure, and I guess I, I've I've tried to build up that three to six months pot of, of expenditures, and I think sometimes I've thought, oh, do I need to do that before I start investing or can I do that as I'm investing as well? At the moment, obviously the market is slightly depressed. So am I potentially missing out on buying when stocks are slightly cheaper? So can I do a combination of both? What would you say to people in that situation? So the reason you have an emergency fund is to guard against the, uh, the sort of what ifs, if you like, the things that you don't really want to happen, but they, they might do. So, I think as long as you're clear on the reason why you might invest, not necessarily before you save your emergency fund, but alongside, I think that's the main thing. So, I mean, take an exa- let, take take a very basic example. Let's say you had two hundred pounds a month excess uh, after you've spent on everything you need to, and you've you've enjoyed yourself every month. If you were to say, "Well, look, I'm going to put fifty pounds a month into uh, an investment." I surf, for example, and then £150 a month into my cash savings. What you'd actually do is you'd build up your emergency fund slower, but you'd also started that savings and investing habit on the investment side at the same time. And like you say, you'd have been able to buy when the market's depressed, as we are at the moment. But also you kind of, because you're buying on a regular basis, it's it's less scary. I actually think one of the biggest problems with investing full stop is that, if you've got a lump sum to do to invest, 
you never really know when the right time to do it is. And so you kind of worry and get put off. Whereas actually you can take that, almost that decision and that emotion out of your control and start a regular saving, which just means that you're going to put the money into the market over a period of time. It's quite interesting, actually, because on that point, I had a, as uh, I was out cycling with one of my friends recently, actually, and he said, uh, he'd been saying to me a few times last year, he said, I'm definitely going to start investing. I'm definitely going to start investing. Right? And I wasn't, I wasn't sort of creating this conversation because I just, you know, that's the last thing. I don't want to bore people with what I do for a living. But he was going to me, no, no, I'm definitely going to start investing. So I was sort of pointing him where he might go and find out some more information. He's been reading up. And I said to him, I said the other day, I said, look, what have you got on? And he said, oh, it's great. He said, I set up this regular saving and I'd almost forgotten about it. And then I came back to it about six months later. And all of a sudden I had more money than I even thought I'd, you know, I was ever going to build up. He said, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? Regular savings are almost magic. You just forget about them and the money's there. And I said, yeah. And I said, well, this is, you know, there is so much around just looking after your finances, which is getting the right habits in place. And it, it just leads you, as long as you've got the patience to have enough time to kind of ride this out, then you are in a better position. So I think there's lots really about around building a savings habit, which means that you can kind of get on, get on with the important thing of actually living your life and sort of know that in the background that you've set up the system for things to work for you, I guess, is, is how I'd say it. Yeah. One of the questions I had here is actually that, you know, for some people, saving just is a challenge, um, particularly as like their costs go up. But then you have people that are, are good savers, but are not very good investors and would prefer just to sit on that money as, as cash and see investing as a risk, but actually sitting on money as cash is also a risk in some ways. So what do you think the steps are from getting someone to be just a saver to then actually encourage them to, to invest in, in money as well? Because I think the more I've learned about investing, understanding compounding and actually how the markets usually over a long time horizon do actually go up has then made me think, right. Yeah. Actually just investing on a regular basis, almost ignoring what the market is doing, but no, I'm in it, in it for the long term. actually puts me at, puts me at ease and then allowed me to take that step. But I think still for most of, for a lot of people, they would actually prefer to, to just keep cash in the bank. So I guess my question is how, how do you think people could sort of reframe that thinking just to encourage them to, to maybe get the money to work for them a, a bit more? Oh, this is a great question. There's so, there's so many things. So I, uh, I guess the first thing to, to point out is that it took me having worked in financial services probably about 10 years to convince my mum and dad that investing their money was a good idea they are like your typical saver where they've been really carefully saved they're careful they're not spenders at all they're savers they look after their money um and they but it was only in cash and it took me sort of 10 years of working in financial services to convince them that actually as long as you're never going to need that money why are you keeping it in cash? And I think it's that, for me, it's that making sure people, or that understanding of what you've got the cash for, because cash is not going to do you any favours in terms of long-term returns. That is absolutely clear. So you need to know what you're, you've got that cash for. And if it's for an emergency fund, brilliant. Keep it as cash. You don't want to invest that. And if it's because you need it in the next five years, for example, again, keep it in cash. So, for example, if I was, uh, you know, if I was in a position where you're going to get married, for example, and you know that's going to happen in a couple of years time and you know you need this money, you're never going to invest it because 
you need that money you need it in cash don't even think about it but after that if you've got money which is sat in cash which essentially you you can't you haven't got a reason for keeping it there it's just it's just there that's when you know the, that thought around investing the money is important and i think once you kind of get comfortable that okay i'm not going to need to call on that money that's i mean certainly with my mum and dad that's what worked but they it might just be they didn't trust me jay i don't know but that's uh, that's that's certainly certainly how i framed it to them but i think also there's just generally there's i think probably like a poor understanding of um the return so the point you said there jay was look if you have a long enough time horizon and that is the key which is always missed because in the media you never hear FTSE 100 up two percent today you see you hear FTSE 100 had its worst day in the market this year always a bad news story so people who are kind of only partly tuned into um uh this whole discussion they assume that investing is gambling and it's not it's not gambling at all it's just a case of i need to have a long enough time horizon as long as i've got that then I've got the ability to invest and I can be confident in the kind of returns that I'm going to get. What I can't do is go and dip that money in the market and expect to get it out in a week's time, in a month's time and be okay. Because the likelihood is you're probably not going to be okay. And you could end up having less than you, you guess. But I mean, before I came on to speak to you, I was sort of checking some of the past, past performance uh, data, because I thought you might ask a, a question like this. And if 20 years ago, I'd had a thousand pounds and put it in cash just left it in the bank i'd today have about 1200 pounds if i'd have put it in a in the global stock markets and bear in mind during that period of time we've had quite a lot of quite a lot of global setbacks in terms of global financial crisis dot-com bubble ukraine crisis if i'd have invested in a global stock market in fund instead i'd have had 5300 pounds so there's a massive difference right there and that's all about having long enough time period to invest your money and I think these are, you know, there's just some kind of key things that people probably don't realise, probably because they've not been investors, their parents before them haven't been investors. And so there's never that trickle down knowledge that actually, as long as you've got time on your side, investing is is for people like you. And I think that's kind of the key message that they, probably the industry doesn't do a very good job of, of getting across a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think um, everyone's experience with money is slightly different, isn't it? Really, like you said, like some some people's parents might have been actively in, investing, where others would have been maybe really risk averse, and that's potentially influenced um, you know people within that family. So, yeah, it is quite a personal experience. But yeah, I think um, <laughs> I sort of say to people, have a go on, just go online to an interest rate compound calculator and just start playing around with like you've done there like what does a what does a thousand pounds look like maybe earning x percent over five years 10 years 20 years and or even look back at some of the historical market averages and just have a play with what that might look like on some of your savings and doesn't take i know it it does take quite a few years but once you get to them then sort of end years you can really see the um the money grow and that's the i guess that's the beauty of of compounding um so when it comes to financial resilience, I've, I was looking at a strategy called the, I think it's called the barbell strategy. I don't know if you've come across this, um, but I, I found it a couple of weeks ago. And th- it's similar to your report in the sense that I'm looking at basically like balancing out my personal finances, almost like a barbell that you'd lift in the gym. So on one side, I've maybe got my investments in 
pretty much stocks, whatever. But that's equally balanced on the other side with um, maybe my pension, which I consider more of a safe bet, an emergency fund, minimal debt, um, and then and and therefore with that balance, it allows me to then sort of continue to to invest in the in the stocks and things like that to to help sort of grow my wealth and. When it comes to that stock side, and I don't know what your view on this, I found it quite tricky as an investor to actually pick individual stocks. So I've picked some good ones, but I've also equally picked some bad ones. And then when I look at actually the performance of my stock picks versus just general sort of index fund investing, I feel like actually I probably would have just been better putting my money in the indexes. Um, I don't know if you've got any experience of that and um, you know over your years in finance. Yeah, I think I think the the key here is to <clears throat> to try and make sure that you do have some balance. I think that's probably the way you described it. I mean, you know what we were talking about there in terms of your in terms of you know our approach, our, our five to thrive approach, and having you know these uh, these different pillars of resilience where you can kind of be comfortable. Is you know that's really really important, but. There's also strategies where you'd have to try and build that balance within your investment. And I guess the other thing to flag is that the pension is, I mean, pensions are kind of, they're, they're weird because they can be incredibly complicated around the edges, but actually they are in, in their simplest form. It's just a long-term investing vehicle. And so if you think that you can invest that in the same way that you can invest your ISA, um, really you're just trying to deliver the, the best returns. And actually what's quite interesting, and this is, uh, I always find this quite interesting how people do their mental accounting because if you think about your pension, you actually bizarrely should probably take the most risk in your pension because you have such a long time period to when you actually need the money. Whereas if you, for example, within an ISA say, "Well, I've got, I'm, I'm going to invest this because I might need it in ten years' time," or you're putting it in your pension, you might not need it for twenty five, thirty years' time. Then it stands to reason that you put, you know higher risk investments within the pension but on, but a lot of people often don't do that because they want the comfort and the safety blanket with the pension and their ISA they see more as not necessarily their play money but the the money where they can they can potentially afford to lose and I think there's just a there's something around what do you mentally feel comfortable doing which is quite interesting I think also on the uh, on the investing side so one of the sort of key strategies that we'll talk to our clients about is a core satellite approach. That's very similar to what you kind of outlined there, Jay. So having a really well-diversified core to your portfolio. So that might be a multi-asset fund. It might be an index tracking fund where you're basically saying, well, look, this is going to go up in line with the market. It's not going to do anything too fancy, but I know that this is going to do the heavy lifting within my you know, within my um, investment account. But there are certain things that I want to buy that might be individual shares. It might be funds that have that are more actively managed. So they give you the opportunity to outperform the market and you buy those in addition to this kind of core. And what that means is I think it gives you a great ability to say, well, look, I'm confident that I've got this amount of money, this core amount that's you know, that's just, I mean, it is going to go up and down because it's invested, but it's not going to be subject to wild swings. Like, for example, if I'm buying some shares on the side and does that kind of approach then give you comfort 
to go and have that in, those interesting ideas on the outside, which might give you, you know, might, might give you some great opportunity for a turn, but equally could underperform. And I think it's all about, to a certain extent, mentally accounting, but also thinking through what you feel comfortable doing. And I think that for me, a, a core satellite approach for a lot of people is going to be very sensible. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I know during the sort of first few months of the pandemic when stocks strained, I know they, they, they took a big dip and then they went on a huge rally. So a few of my stock picks did pretty well. And I actually thought for a time I was the next Warren Buffett for a, for a, <laughs> <laughs> for a few months. Um, and then I was brought back down to earth with a couple of uh, couple of bad picks. So I think that's um, it's definitely started to make me think a little bit more about actually having that well-diversified portfolio um and yeah like you said probably having some picks if you you know if you know you've got enough reasons as to why you want to buy that stock um but actually having that that broad diversified portfolio actually actually makes sense when it comes to sorry go on i was gonna say it's there is i think there's a key difference as well between buying individual stocks and buying a fund that is more I guess, more concentrated. So for example, there are funds out there that might be, that might invest in technology companies, or they might be uh, investing in China or India, or do you see what I mean? So you can almost buy things that you, if you have the strength of feeling around certain areas, you can get a manager to still manage that money for you. So you haven't got the, you know, the really quite huge risk that comes with buying one stock that, you know, the amount of money you put into there is completely dependent on how not only how that company performs, but how the market perceives that that company performs versus still having diversification in a position where you, you think, well, actually, do you know, what? I, I, I want to have some exposure here because I do believe in this from an investment perspective, but I just don't think I can pick the individual stocks myself. And that's, that's equally a perfectly reasonable way to, to think through things. I think. And from a personal finance perspective, I'd imagine, you know, most people that listen to this podcast potentially will have a pension. And my take on a pension really is that I've tried to just maximize my contributions to the point where my employer will maximize them as well. And then sort of outside of that, I'll invest in my like stocks and shares ISA as as my next sort of port of call and probably try and maximize that before I do anything sort of else is that a sensible strategy do you think uh so broadly using tax shelters wherever you can is kind of the way to 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 sort of approach this problem i guess uh your first port of call to go back to your employer and sort of say look what else is on the table because what normally happens with a lot of workplace pensions is you're enrolled at a certain level you pay in a bit and your employer pays in a bit and a lot of people assume that's all they can have from the plan. Whereas actually, if I, uh, I might be in a position where I can increase what I pay in a bit and then my employer matches that. So you kind of, if you can, want to go almost to try and max out whatever you can from your employer. So if you think of it as, well, it's free money that I'm leaving on the table. This is basically like my pay. I can get a pay rise just as long as I give up a bit of my money now. That's kind of the way to think of it. So that strategy, absolutely number one port of call. Um, Thereafter, there is, it comes down to kind of what tax rate you're paying. And that is where it does get a little bit complicated. But broadly, if you're most people who pay higher rate tax whilst they're working will pay basic rate tax when they're retired. And so you have the ability to kind of get 
if you can get higher rate tax relief whilst you're working on any, any pension contributions that you make, that's normally a, normally quite a sensible strategy to, to go for as well. Um, if you're a basic rate taxpayer and you're under 40, as well as the ISA, which is the you know conventional way to, to invest your money, there is also something called a lifetime ISA. And what that does, it kind of gives you the, the uplift on the pension like you would do if you're a basic rate taxpayer, but you don't get taxed when you take the money out at the end, like you do with a pension. And uh, also you can invest in all the kind of same things like that you can with a, an ISA account as well. So there's this is where the problem is, there's a number of different products which starts to make things quite complicated, but certainly go and get your employer contributions. First of all, think if you're a high rate taxpayer, think about paying more into the pension. And if you're a basic rate taxpayer and under 40, a lifetime ice is definitely worth a look. Okay. Good to know. And I often, a lot of people joke with me on this podcast because I start every episode with, this is not financial advice, um, which of course today would be the same. It's not financial advice. Uh, but for somebody who has given financial advice, um, what's the sort of things that a financial advisor would actually you know, ask people, ask their clients? What would you get sort of uh, an individual to think about when they first start to just try and understand a bit more about their personal finances? Uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, look, this is a really good question because actually this is... Uh... I mean, this is kind of a key point that the industry's not necessarily um, it's kind of grappling with at the moment, really, because really, if you think that lots of the recommendations that you might get from a financial advisor could be automated. So if you get certain inputs from a client, um, you might just be able to give them a recommendation without really the interaction with a human being at all. Uh, and there's been and that's kind of something called robo-advice, or it's not often called robo-advice, where basically you just have, essentially the computer provides the recommendation for you. Um, and we have seen some of those launch in the UK, um, but I have to say, to be fair, they haven't really been very successful. There doesn't really seem to be huge uptake in that. And that, I think the reason is, for me, the skill and the, the reason to get a financial advisor is they're going to help you uncover the things that you don't even know are likely to apply in your life. So if you think every financial advisor is going to be helping people with essentially how to build a plan to use their money, use their wealth for the things that they need in their, their lifetime. So what they're going to do is they're going to map out what you've got at the moment. They're going to help you understand what you're spending on at the moment, but also what, so therefore what's left over. They're going to help you understand what your plans are for your house, for your work, for your family, and also for kind of your leisure time. So what do you like doing? Where do you like going on holiday? What do you want to spend your money on as well? That's kind of what an advisor is going to do. And then they're going to build you a plan. But there's things within that that you might not even think about yourself. So imagine when you're coming through to retirement, you might you might be in your, your family home. You've been in there for years and years and years. What do people like me do when I come to retirement? Do they stay in the same home? Do they change? What's the implications of changing? You might have got kids and you might have got money built up. And then the financial advisor flags, well, hang on a minute. We, you, your kids might get married at some point. Do you think you might contribute to their wedding? Crikey, I hadn't even thought about that because I haven't had to be in that position. And I think lots of the big decisions in life that you probably don't plan for them in advance because you've never had to plan for those big points before. 
So I think retirement, for example, is one of the times when most people, even if they're perfectly happy managing their money all the way through their lifetime, at retirement, they often go and get financial advice because they're dealing with loads and loads of new concepts. So it might not be that they can't deal with those, but it's just there's so many new things that they've never had to cope with before. I mean, you kind of only retire once. You don't really stop work multiple times. And so as a result, someone who's taken and sort of held the hand of multiple people through that process is kind of quite a good per- person to go and consult at that point in time. So I think it's more about the kind of the, the fact that they've been there, they've seen it, they've helped other people through that. And they understand the kind of things that come up to help you challenge yourself. That's really the, I think, where the skill and expertise of an advisor comes comes into play. Yeah, and I think we talked about this when we initially first spoke. But I sort of asked myself the question: like, when when would I need a financial advisor? Like, I know I'm I'm investing a bit of cash here and there. I'm not talking about huge amounts, so but would it be worthwhile for me to speak to a financial advisor now? Would, would that be just too expensive? Is it better? And like you said, most people probably do it a little bit later on in life. Or is there a way that people can learn more at this stage rather than having to maybe employ a financial advisor that can just help set them up on a better, a better path for the future? I think, yeah. It's, and this is, I mean, this ultimately here, this is essentially it's a market for advice, right? So it's where, at what point do you feel that actually things are too hard and you, you, you're going to go and pay for it and actually you know all of the work that we do when we look at this it shows that people the two kind of catalysts are when people deal with lots of things that they don't haven't come across before or when the amount of money that they've got is got to such an extent that actually if they make mistakes it's going to be catastrophic for the for the rest of their for the rest of their life so you kind of see why lots of people come and take advice at retirement but actually i mean i would say jay you know this point kind of around 50 is quite a good place to take advice because what you've got the ability to do at that point is really power up your pension in those final years so yeah. if you go and get some help from some an advisor right at the point of retirement that's fine because they can help you make the best of what you've got if you start speaking to someone from age 50 or, or you know or that kind of age they've got the ability to help you commit a little bit more to your pension to help you understand if you can grow it a little bit more, which gives you more options when you get to retirement. They can work out the investment strategy because there's still time on your side to invest that money a bit, bit more sensibly. So there's lots of things that an advisor can do. And I guess it really just comes to down to at what point do people feel like engaging? I think, you know, where I don't think an advisor adds much value is if, you know, if you're just getting started 50 hundred pounds a month into investments i mean yeah they can help you out but you're going to pay quite a lot for the privilege of invest of you know just getting that starter once you've kind of got a bit more money built up that's you know really when when they can begin to help and particularly on the pension side i mean these days essentially at the point of retirement you are going to have a big pot of money in your pension because of the way the pension system works and essentially you could take it all out on one on day on day one of being retired and just have all that money back in your possession now that's just for the purposes of the uh, podcast that's not a very good idea normally but you the point is you've just got so much freedom and i think just being able to get to grips to it is a really important thing to do uh, whether you do that by educating yourself on the run into that to retirement or whether you do that by taking advice so it's kind of best not left to the last minute 
Yeah. Sort of disappointed thinking that a financial advisor would just you'd speak to them and they'd give you like these 10 incredible stock picks that they've just got some sort of, <laughs> I advise you to buy this now, <laughs> like a golden gecko. Yeah, the thing is, if the financial advisor could do that, they definitely wouldn't be speaking to you because they'd be on a beach somewhere and just be loving life. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think, and I think that's for me, actually, I think the skill of an advisor is less about the investment side. That's that's essentially why you've got fund managers, because their job is day in, day out, working out how best to allocate risk within a portfolio, the best stock picks to buy within that, et cetera, et cetera. So, that, so think of the financial advisor more about the planning. And actually, to be honest, if you speak to a financial advisor and they're suggesting that they can give you massive returns that you kind of think, oh, that sounds great. They're probably probably not the best financial advisor to speak to, if I'm honest. Yeah, that's probably good advice. <laughs> Okay, Nathan, I'm going to put you on the spot now then. So hypothetical question. So if I was to give you, actually, I'm not going to give it you, but I'm going to take £100,000 and I'm going to invest it in the next sort of five to 10 years and then give you the, the initial sort of cash and the returns. Where would you put that? Where would you put that money? Uh, yeah, I've put me on the spot. Um, so the... Yeah, this is quite difficult because my natural position would be, well, actually, if you give me that money, I can put that into my tax shelters and plan it really efficiently. And I haven't got that opportunity. So, I mean, basically, I would be looking at the moment, if I had 10 years, for example, I would be looking at that and saying, well, that's predominantly, I want that invested in the stock market. Um, I'd, be look, I'd be getting you to use funds. I wouldn't want you to be buying individual shares. No. No offence, Jay, that's not a reflection of your stock picking ability. I've got no idea. That might be good or otherwise. But I think I just want a really uh, <clears throat> a really sensible, sensible well-managed fund. And then in 10 years' time, I can be confident that that money is going to be be higher when, I, when it comes through to me. That's kind of how I think of it. Um, knowing full well that I've got my own investments and I could probably do some – and, and that approach, actually, what it might do is it might make me be a little bit more uh, – a little bit more adventurous with some of the money that I've got invested. That's how I'd probably think of it. And would would timing come into it? So would you would you say, yeah, just invest it all today, or would you want me to stagger it? Now, definitely there, I would be looking at you to stagger that because for me, and actually this is I think one of the biggest problems is that just that emotional. Because if I get if you said if I Jay, if you took that money and said to me, I'm going to invest it. I'd then be putting you on the spot because you'd be going, oh, crikey, do I invest it today? Or what happens if it might be better tomorrow? And so all of a sudden you've got some problems because you don't, and you don't know the best time to invest. And actually the thing to do then is to take that decision out of your hands and say, well, actually, I will, fa- I will phase that money in over a period of time. Now, that length of that period of time, I mean, to be honest, there's no real right or wrong on that. But with £100,000, maybe over a year, because actually, if we think about where we are at the moment, we're in a position where we've seen a fairly significant drop in the market to begin with because of Ukraine. Um, you, but we, no one knows whether things are going to get worse or going to get better in terms of the, the, the market's perception of, of this. And so actually, if you drip, that, drip feed that in, it could turn out to be the worst decision ever because it could we could be at the absolute low point in the market and it and I'd be kicking myself but actually 
it's more likely that the market's going to fluctuate over that period of time. And some of those units in the fund you're going to buy cheaper and some will be more expensive. But over that period of time, you've taken away some of that uncertainty, you've taken some away some of that emotional nervousness about dropping it all into the market in one, one day. Brilliant. Just another question then, in terms of resources and things that people can sort of, you know, go away and read and learn a little bit more to just help encourage them on their own investment journey. Is there any areas that you'd advise them to go and look? Is there any sort of things on the uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne website that you'd recommend or certain people to follow either on social media or or whatever that that you think would be useful? So, look, I mean, from our perspective, from Hargreaves Lansdowne, a lot of the topics we've talked about today, we have the information there to, to, to work through. So, uh, the information, the five to thrive that I um, that I talked about earlier, that's on our website, and I'm happy to share so you can pop it in the show notes, Jay, if that's a possibility, so we yep. can we can do that. Um, the other thing is, uh, I mean, just generally on our website, we have lots of information available, and we also have recently uh, got a uh, we have our own podcast on a slightly, I say, slightly less. Um, built around how yours is Jay which is looking at a wide variety of topics and actually more about those those individual investment themes but again you know that's that's the kind of thing that um is proving sort of very popular with people just because I think what's really key is accessible content I think you know there's a load of information out there on investing it's just that a lot of it's not particularly accessible and I think actually podcasts is certainly a, a way forward in terms of driving that that interest um I think the other, I mean, it depends really what you're looking for. I think where you can get a lot of help from firms like um, there's a, uh, a sort of gov- government organisation called Money Helper, which is very good for things like the how much money should I hold, hold in cash? How do I get the right protection for me and my family? How do I manage my debt? Those kind of things. Loads of information there, which is very, very, very helpful. Probably less helpful on the investment side. So I think probably... Uh, investment platforms like Hargreaves Lansdowne, are re- they're going to be a really good source of information because they're going to be talking about lots of different things that you can consider. And uh, you know, the way that we see our clients interact is that they kind of they, they build their knowledge over time. So maybe to begin with, they'll just be you know reading one or two uh, articles, and then they kind of build up and build up and build up. Because actually, there's an element where your your confidence and your knowledge sort of they sort of grow hand in hand over time. I think there's just an element whereby no one's an expert on day one. They just need to kind of, you know, just drip feed some of this information through. Absolutely. Even this, this year I've learned so much. I mean, I think I started the year off with an episode about my, my 2022 investment strategy outlined. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, invest in in this 50% is going to go here, 20% going there or whatever it was. And already now after speaking to people like yourself, I had a fund manager on the podcast um, the other week as well. And already that is changing. It's evolving so much. And um, yeah, as I'm learning, and I guess as most people will be as well, it's, um, it's adapting, but that's, that's what this podcast is, is about really. Um, so and yeah. Jay, has your do you think your approach has changed because you've been investing in a market downturn? Do you think that's because I think that is kind of quite important from an investment perspective to there's no good only experiencing the good times. You kind of need to understand what happens in the bad times because it, it kind of prepares you as an investor a little bit better, would be how I'd view it anyway. 
yeah definitely it, it has changed i think um i you know i wanted to invest pretty much most of my surplus cash this year in you know actually into the markets and then as we're now experiencing a, a downturn i've looked at my financial resilience and actually thought I, I would prefer a little bit more in the rainy day fund that's just my own personal opinion so somebody might be happy with just a couple of months but i've wanted to increase that so therefore i've invested a little bit less than what i initially thought i was going to do at the start of the year because of the the downturn and then i also wanted to invest a little bit i had like a fairly decent amount sort of reserved for crypto because i was quite bullish on the space but then as I've just been learning more and more about long-term time horizons and the fact that that industry is still very much in its early days, um, I've I've actually probably changed that approach a little bit and now looking at a more diversified range of funds and indexes across a wide range of sectors rather than being probably a little bit too maybe overexposed in some cases into 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 crypto. So. I've changed that approach a little bit. I, I, you know, I, I could be wrong, but then when you look at the likes of of Buffett, and I've mentioned him quite a lot on the podcast in previous episodes, he was he invested sort of consistently over a long period of time and and worked having time on his on his side rather than trying to get the greatest returns. And I think sort of crypto does you know, encourage people to maybe take a little bit more risk. And if you look back, I think it's the airline industry back in maybe the early 1900s, there was like over, oh, that's no, the car industry in America. There's maybe over a hundred different car brands. And then they all went bankrupt. Even even the, the two pretty much, I know we've got Tesla now, but you've got GM and Ford, where they're the only, the only real car companies left in America. And even both of them went bankrupt at one point. So it's actually made me think, yeah, picking stocks or even picking crypto projects is pretty hard to do if you want to con- you know, have that real long-term approach to building your wealth, which is really what I want. So it definitely has these last few months changed my approach a little bit. One of the things that we actually focus on a lot at Hargreaves Zanzan is just they we try and um, – and what we found is kind of very detrimental is if people are too high risk – or they they lack diversification, and so that's where we're trying to provide content to help people. Because, and again, you know, there's an element here whereby if you're really high risk and you know exactly what you're going into, that that's absolutely fine. So it's kind of more about making sure that what you've got is what you actually want it to be. And I think you know that's if someone wants to go and buy something that's really high risk, you know, an individual stock or uh, you know. Um, crypto or unlisted i think that's you know do it if you've got the you know if you really want to if that's where you want to to go but just be mindful that that should be a part of a diversified portfolio and the rest you know and a small part as well you know the rest you know really needs to be quite um you know well diversified sensibly sensibly managed and i think you know then if you're if you're sort of investing on the edges with some really high risk stuff like crypto assets or like uh any unlisted investments, those kind of things, then there's not much, I guess the way to think of it is there's not as much that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone lost 10% of their wealth at the point in retirement, because it was all invested in, uh, you know, a single quite speculative investment. Okay. It's going to be pretty unpleasant, but it's not as bad as losing all your money at that point in time. And I think it's just, it's just the, the level to which you expose yourself. It's probably is a, is quite an important, important decision when investing. I think. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Nathan, thanks again for your time today. It's been absolute, yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast and uh, sharing some of your experience and, and wisdom. Um, how can how can people sort of follow you? Are you on uh, Twitter or anything they could sort of follow you on? There? Yeah, I'm 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 on at Long Pensions on Twitter, which shows that I you know used to spend far too much of my time looking at the pensions in the uk but that's my my twitter handle but again if you if you're looking to for to follow um uh, hubby zanstown it's at hl invest on twitter uh, and you can follow there and there's plenty of information that we, we make available there and put out on social channels which which should be of interest to your to your listeners brilliant brilliant well thanks again for your time oh thanks for having me there we go nathan long as always, it's great to have a guest on the podcast. I think it really accelerates my learning and hopefully helps accelerate the learnings of, of you, the listener of The Wealth Journal. So massive thank you to Nathan. And um, yeah, one thing I wanted to address actually, and this was something me and Nathan discussed sort of off air, was that I want to I want to try and bring more, I guess, inclusion and different perspectives onto the wealth journal podcast i'm very conscious you know being blunt that the last the last female guest i had on the podcast was betty from dead fellas um so this isn't for you know me not trying i'm trying to get more guests just more perspectives more points of view onto the podcast because one thing i've i've learned as i've been learning more about wealth and this is part of the reason why i think I'm not in a position to give financial advice, nor even as a financial advisor in a position to give broad financial advice on on a podcast or on a platform like a podcast. It's because financial advice is is very personal. Everyone's experience and situation is completely unique to them. And I think something that I might say might resonate with, you know, certain people, but maybe not resonate with other people. And same same of my guests you know, something that they might say, I might think, yeah, that's brilliant. And other things I'm, you know, maybe isn't for me, which is fine. So I want to, with this Wealth Journal podcast, I want to try and bring on more perspectives, people with different backgrounds, people with different upbringings, people with obviously course different genders. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm very aware of, very conscious of, and something I'm, I'm trying to address. So if you listen to this and you've got a story to tell, then of course, you know, get in touch. I'd be keen to hear from you. And hopefully the next few weeks, I'll be able to bring on uh, different perspectives going forward. But that's something I'm very aware of. And I did want to, I did want to address that because it's certainly not for trying. Um, so yeah, hopefully that'll help. And I, I guess in some ways, unfortunately, finance is a little bit like that. It's very male dominated. Crypto is the same. I've been learning a lot about that industry as well. I think 95% of people involved in the crypto space are male. So it's something that I'd like to address. You know, I'm, I'm a father of a daughter. I want her to be engaged with sort of money and understand that as she grows up. So yeah, something that I want to try and improve uh, just for the industry in general, but I can't really control all that. But what I can do is try and try and do that through my podcast. So yeah, there's a commitment from me to to keep trying. As always, thanks for listening. Um, it's been yeah, it's been another great week for the Wealth Journal. Let me know what you think of this episode. Send me some you know, some feedback. Uh, if you can share it, if you can follow, subscribe, that really helps the podcast grow. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Take care. 